Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, formerly Inpatient Myeloma Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. You can find all past and future shows on myelomacrowd.org, and if you'd like to receive a weekly email about past and upcoming interviews, you can subscribe to our newsletter on the homepage or follow us there on Facebook or Twitter. Now, we will be asking, um, it, opening it up for caller questions at the end of the show, so if you have a question, you can call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. Now, before we get started on our show today, we want to let you know about a very exciting and upcoming development. We think doctors can do more to find a cure for myeloma with our support and involvement as patients. I believe that if we sit back and wait for the next big breakthrough, we may be waiting a long time and they need our support. So on Monday, the myeloma crowd will begin a new way to help find a cure for this disease with our a new research initiative called the Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative. We are asking myeloma researchers to submit proposals for high-risk myeloma. Uh, we will have we have a six-person um, myeloma expert committee, scientific advisory board, that will be reviewing the proposals, and we will join that with a patient activist committee of five patients. And after we select what we think are the projects that will make the most impact, we'll create crowdfunding campaigns for those projects, and you'll be able to identify where you want your donation to go and be able to see exactly where your donation is going. Now, we're choosing high-risk myeloma because for patients with aggressive genetic features or a disease that's become resistant to medications that are used today, like this show is about, they have run out of options. And if we can find solutions for the most aggressive type of myeloma, it will help even standard or low-risk myeloma patients. So the, the most exciting part of this project, I believe, is that patients will have a say in the proposals that are selected. And to my knowledge, that's the first time that's been done really on a large scale in any type of cancer. Now, on to, on to today's show. We are delighted to have Dr. Ravi Vich with us today to discuss newer options that are available for patients where where the myeloma has become aggressive and has either relapsed or has become resistant to existing drugs. And this, when that happens, that is called refractory myeloma. So welcome very much, Dr. Veach. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, let me give a little introduction for you before we get started. Dr. Ravi Vidge is Associate Professor of Medicine at the Washington School of Medicine in the Bone Marrow Transplant Section. He received his medical degree in India and did follow-up training and a residency at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago and fellowships in oncology and bone marrow transplantation with stem cell biology at Washington University. He's a member of ASCO, ASH, the St. Louis Society of Clinical Oncology, and the American Association for the Advancement of Science. He serves on numerous national committees, including the Myeloma Transplant Leukemia Committees of the Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology and the steering committee of the MMRC. He, his honors include the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation Innovator Award in 2013 and the MMRC Center of Excellence Award. He's the author of over 100 peer-reviewed publications as well as a book called Contemporary Management of Multiple Myeloma and several book chapters. He served as a reviewer for several journals, including Blood, Journal of Clinical Oncology, Bone Marrow Transplantation, Experimental Hematology, and Hematologica. His primary academic interests include the treatment of myeloma and stem cell transplantation for hematologic malignancies. He leads many clinical trials and has established a large myeloma tissue bank at Washington University with a strong institutional focus on studying the genomics of the disease which are really critical to understanding uh, what causes myeloma and how we cure myeloma. So with that introduction, let's go ahead and get started. 
And um, maybe we can start by talking about what we do and don't know about what causes drug resistance. I think that we know uh, very little at this point about what causes uh, drug resistance. What we know is that increasingly it is becoming clear in myeloma, like in other uh, cancers, that there are multiple clones of cancer cells. So we used to think that at least initially, when cancer arose, it was a homogeneous population of cells, and over time, we developed mutations in these uh, cells, which gave rise to new clones and uh, possibly drug resistance. We now know that uh, uh, these subclones are often existent uh, right at the time of diagnosis. There is one clone that is dominant and is causing problems which comes under control, and then at time of progression, often that original clone that was causing the problems remains suppressed, but it is a different clone that uh, is emerging. And so that uh, brings up the issue of uh, being able to, after treating that uh, second clone, if patients progress a second or third time, being able to go back to drugs that they were sensitive to in the past. And that uh, is something that right now is in the realm of research, but may one day become a clinically viable uh, test. Uh, So the issue of drug resistance is something that we're learning a lot about, uh, and uh, resistance to drug once may not mean resistance to drug forever. However, if you are asking about uh, what we know about true mechanisms of resistance to our uh, known drugs, we have some clues that perhaps uh, uh, the group of drugs, immunomodulatory drugs, that is lenalidomide and pomalidomide, may uh, work through this uh, molecule called cerebellon, and expression of cerebellon may, uh, low expression of cerebellon may count for resistance. Uh, Likewise, uh, for bortezomib, there have been mutations described in the uh, proteasome, which is the uh, target for uh, the drug. Uh, Also, there have been reports of uh, certain mutations in key molecules in the cell that uh, are the target uh, for proteasomal degradation that may also, uh, once they're mutated, no longer uh, allow the cell to be uh, killed off by uh, bortezomib or other proteasome inhibitors. There are uh, uh, certain uh, proteins that uh, cells use to pump out drugs, uh, and there is some uh, data that uh, certain uh, cancer cells may upregulate certain proteins that pump out the cancer drug and thereby make it ineffective. So um, those are all uh, the subject of research, um, we, as I said at the outset, know, unfortunately, very little about this area. So you mentioned the image. Can you track your, is it cerebellum that you said? Well, there levels? are tests you... that are, yeah, so there are tests that are done right now in the realm of research, um, but uh, there is a move to see if one can commercialize an assay to track the cerebellum level. That is not yet a commercially available test, and uh, it is something that may in the future become available. Um, mm-hmm. People are looking at not just one uh, gene, but are also looking to see if one can come up with some kind of a, um, a sort of a chip that can predict for resistance uh, based on the mutational profile of a cancer. Um, So there's a lot of effort going on in that area, but uh, unfortunately at the moment we don't have any commercially available tests to look for resistance. And is cerebellum like a protein, or what is that? Yes, it is a a protein in the cell. Okay, just curious about that. Well, maybe we we talk about that um, next. Can you – how do you predict – whether somebody will become resistant or not? Is it based on um, what are you looking at or or what would they look at as they develop this 
a standardized kind of test for this genetic features or something else? Well, I think it may be uh, unique to each drug class. Uh, if we can one day come to uh, predict how uh, a person is likely to respond or not to respond to a drug, it uh, may be a drug-specific uh, assay or it may be a very wide assay of, uh, you know, the uh, genomics of the cancer cell. As I said at the beginning, uh, over the last few years, uh, this issue of clonal tides has become very uh, uh, much at the forefront, uh, and people are trying to see if they can ultimately, with the declining cost of next-generation sequencing, use that technology one day to predict for um, what uh, a patient is likely or to respond to or not. But I believe that such things are still several years away from commercialization. Now, a follow-up question to that. If you study the genetic profile uh, and the biology of the different types of myeloma, what can you give us a refresher about what's the difference between the next-generation sequencing and the gene expression profile test? The gene expression profile test is already commercially available test. More than one company offers it. And that is looking at the um, RNA expression levels of certain genes. Um, so uh, for those that are not uh, totally, uh, you know, uh, up to date on uh, the way uh, uh, the whole process works, we have DNA, which is encoded in our chromosomes, uh, that ultimately gives rise to RNA, which ultimately gets uh, translated into proteins, and is the proteins that usually do the good or bad job in a cell. Um, so the gene expression profiles have so far looked at that intermediary, the RNA, the expression level of the RNA. And it has been validated um, in a number of data sets that uh, these um, uh, expression of certain uh, genes, the pattern of gene expression, uh, can correlate with prognosis. Um, and uh, there have been small papers looking at it as a predictor of responsiveness as well. Um, however, uh, uh, increasingly people are wanting to look at the DNA itself, and that is where next-generation sequencing uh, comes in. Um, it is a technology that allows us to look at the mutational profile uh, of the originator uh, DNA. Also, uh, the same technology can be used to do what is called RNA uh, sequencing, which is uh, giving uh, more information than just uh, RNA expression levels. Um, and uh, there are others who believe that proteomics, which is a technology which is uh, very much in its infancy, even uh, less developed than uh, the next-generation sequencing technology, may uh, in the future hold the most promise uh, because ultimately it is the proteins that are uh, regulating uh, the cellular uh, function. Um, but ultimately, uh, it is going to probably be not just the one technology, but a multitude of technologies that will need to be uh, synthesized uh, to give a true picture. Uh, added to this complexity is what we call uh, epigenetics, which is uh, that we know that uh, there is a regulation of these genes by uh, our DNA, uh, which uh, is through different processes uh, in the cell and that are regulated by methylation or, or acetylation, and uh, that is a whole different area uh, where uh, people are also focused on uh, to, you know, get a better idea of how cells function. And I don't know that much about epigenetics, so um, is that kind of just has something to do with the bone marrow environment, or it's just the, the, na the nature and characteristics of the actual myeloma cells? So genetics is uh, a broad field, and uh, we use the term relatively loosely sometimes. But increasingly what we are talking about is to study the, uh, uh, the cellular function of the myeloma cell at the DNA level, um, 
this uh, is where the information uh, that we are born with resides, uh, the DNA, and it is felt that uh, in most cases myeloma arises from uh, previously normal plasma cells because some genetic alteration occurs in the DNA uh, that sets off the process. Um, we uh, know based on a number of uh, publications that have come out in the last few years that myeloma has uh, a multitude of uh, mutations that are uh, um, there uh, in uh, the patients. However, um, in contrast to some cancers where we have been able to pinpoint what mutation causes a specific cancer, like chronic myelogenous leukemia being a case in point, there's one uh, typical translocation that occurs in the cancer cell that is present in universally uh, uh, near 100% of patients. In myeloma, uh, it has been a little more sobering in that, yes, we find mutations, but the most prevalent of these are probably in less than 10% of patients. So it is a heterogeneous disease, at least at the mutational uh, level. Um, however, we are just starting to unravel uh, the biology and uh, just compiling a list of mutations uh, is the simplest thing that we can do. And uh, only with time can we take it to the next level where we look at the interactions of these mutations and perhaps what we call a systems biology approach to see if it is not just a specific mutation, but perhaps a cluster of mutations that interact in some way to produce the cancer may be the uh, answer because so far, as I said, no one <coughs> discrete mutation has uh, uh, sprung out as the cause of uh, myeloma. <coughs> And it's very complicated when there's not a single target, it seems like. And I know we'll go into this. I want to. I want you to be able to cover um, what's being done on the COMPASS trial to try to do a little more detail and personalized therapy for, for everyone. Um, and let's talk about that a little bit later because it's really important. But maybe you want to start by giving us an overview of um, current relapse refractory approaches maybe a history of what's been effective and, and not effective, and, and then where research is headed in general with this complexity. So I think that uh, we've made tremendous progress in the last 15-odd uh, years in terms of our ability to treat patients with myeloma, both untreated and relapse refractory. The uh, mainstay of the uh, ad, uh, advances has been uh, two classes of drugs, proteasome inhibitors and immunomodulatory drugs. Um, uh, we've had bortezomib uh, 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 as a proteasome inhibitor and both thalidomide and lenalidomide as immunomodulatory drugs uh, available commercially for uh, nearly a decade uh, or more now. Uh, However, uh, we've had new additions to this, uh, uh, these classes of drugs, including carfilzomib, a new proteasome inhibitor, and pomalidomide, a new immunomodulatory drug in the last two to three years, which are uh, helping patients who are often uh, refractory to these earlier approved compounds. So I think uh, these drugs uh, are still being uh, explored uh, to... Uh, get their full potential um, with carfilzomib, different doses of the drug uh, over and above the current licensed drug, uh, drug dose may uh, provide additional uh, benefit in terms of better response rates. Certain co certainly combinations of carfilzomib and uh, pomalidomide either between the two drugs or independently carfilzomib combinations and pomalidomide combinations are showing higher response rates than the drugs alone. So I think that uh, the best way to give these drugs is still uh, the subject of investigation. Uh, but in terms of drugs that are not yet uh, approved, there are uh, some that are, uh, you know, very promising. And uh, among those that group, the monoclonal antibodies probably holds the most promise and their elotuzumab uh, has been in development for a few years. 
this is a monoclonal antibody to what was formerly called CS1, now called SLAM7, and uh, that is something that um, may uh, finally be a uh, uh, you know, approved in the year to come uh, as the trial uh, that has uh, been and done to uh, get it approved in relapsed refractory disease um, has uh, finished accrual a few years ago, and it is expected that the, uh, that the trial may read out uh, sometime later this year. Um, the, the, the other... Uh, target for monoclonal antibodies is CD38, of which uh, two different uh, uh, compounds are, uh, you know, in development, Daratumumab, and the other one does not yet have a name, but goes by uh, SAR650984. Uh, both these uh, seem to be fairly comparable in their efficacy, the two CD38 antibodies. Uh, and what we are also realizing is that both these classes of monoclonal antibodies, uh, ilotuzumab and the C38 antibodies, perhaps work best when combined with immunomodulatory drugs and perhaps with the CD38 uh, combination with proteasome inhibitors may also be uh, valuable. But it appears that the um, class of immunomodulatory drugs uh, gives a boost to the immune system that uh, is what uh, these drugs rely on for uh, either a majority or a significant proportion of their uh, potential activity. Um, so I think that the, this uh, class of compounds will provide the next major advance in uh, uh, therapy. Um, there are other drugs that are um, being looked at uh, that will also, I think, uh, help patients, and these include the oral proteasome inhibitors. Um, uh, Ixazomib is uh, the one that is uh, further along in development. In phase three, it is uh, an oral drug uh, similar to Velcade. Uh, Oprozomib, a drug similar to Carfilzomib, uh, has uh, also been in development for a while, but has had a little uh, delay in its development due to GI toxicity. Uh, however, this may uh, be something that with dose modifications, stepped up dosing, and uh, increased use of antiemetics now become more uh, uh, tolerable. So uh, oral proteasome inhibitors uh, would, I think, offer the convenience of long-term administration of drugs and in a disease where it appears increasingly that long-term therapy rather than uh, start, stop, and start again uh, may be the better paradigm. So oh. I think uh, uh, there are certainly a host of other drugs uh, that are also in development. Um, one that uh, one can mention is the Array 520 compound, which also is seeking approval in relapsed refractory disease. Um, this is uh, a, a KSP inhibitor which is uh, shown activity in patients who have failed multiple other therapies. Another drug that is uh, looking somewhat promising is KPT-330, uh, 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 which is a drug uh, from a company called Carrier Pharma that uh, has shown activity when combined with dexamethasone in patients. Uh, it does have uh, some uh, issues around GI toxicity and tolerability, which need to be worked out, uh, but it at least is showing promise. Um, we presented some data on uh, ibrutinib, which is a drug approved for chronic lymphocytic leukemia and some lymphomas, and when combined with dexamethasone especially, it seemed to have uh, responses in refractory patients. So more work needs to be done with all these compounds. Um, and the ones that I've gone over are not by any means an exhaustive list. There are a number of other monoclonal antibodies and small molecules that are showing activity. So that's a, it's a lot that's happening in this. And to maybe recap what you said, you have the option of using more of a type of drug for a relapsed patient. You have an option of combining the different drugs together or using them in different combinations, like let's say you've been on bortezomib and 
and lenalidomide or something, um, you could try and maybe carfilzomib and pomalidomide and get a different response, right? Correct. And then um, the monoclonal antibodies are using your own immune system to fight the oral proteasome inhibitors and then other different types of inhibitors. So before we go into a little more detail about um, some of those, I'm I'm just wondering how do you as a as a clinician and a researcher try to come up with the best option and alternative for a patient that walks into your clinic that's been relapsed? What what are the steps or the thoughts that you go through to try to pick the very best um option for the patient? I think that is dependent on a number of uh, factors, both patient-specific, disease-specific, and other. So I think one has to take into account uh, the uh, age of a patient. Certain drugs are harsher on the body, have more side effects than others. One has to take into account the uh, the performance status, which is often more important than the age, uh, a patient's ability to uh, uh, perform activities of daily living is often a good uh, indicator of ability to tolerate certain classes of drugs. One looks at what other health problems the patient may have, whether he has significant heart problems, kidney problems, liver problems. Uh, those can often affect our choice of drugs. And then uh, one looks at the biology of the disease. Uh, certain uh, uh, chromosomal features of the disease may uh, be uh, more likely to respond to a certain class of drugs like the 414 translocation and to some extent the deletion 17P may uh, be uh, something that uh, responds uh, better to a proteasome inhibitor than immunomodulated drug. But again, this is by no means, uh, you know, that immunomodulated drugs don't work for this patient population. It, they do. Um, and often uh, you combine uh, them um, there are uh, other factors uh, that we consider that uh, are very uh, mundane, like uh, ability of a patient to visit a doctor's office to get a drug, um, whether a patient has the social support. Uh, sometimes uh, insurance-driven issues like ability to afford co-pays, which often are a little more steep for oral drugs than drugs given in the doctor's office, may also uh, drive our choice of therapy. So I think uh, myeloma is somewhat un uh, unique among diseases in the heterogeneity of approach that we have uh, for treatment of relapse and refractory disease. If you get 10 experts around a table, they'll have a little bit of difference in how they approach a patient. And even within a doctor's practice, how he treats an individual patient has heterogeneity. And in myeloma, it is more marked than for some of our other cancers where there's more of an algorithmic approach uh, that you do this, then you do this, and then you do this. Uh, in myeloma, uh, it's uh, as much art as it is science. The good thing is that most patients are able to tolerate the currently approved drugs, and often it ends up being a question of how you sequence these over time rather than truly choosing between them. Mm, that's really important. I, I think that just goes to the um, the point that you really need to have a myeloma specialist in your corner that does this all day long for, for patients because they know about all the different options and, and drugs and things that are looking promising. So it, it seems in clinical trials, relapsed refractory is the first group that gets new drugs just because the drugs aren't working, um, the existing drugs aren't aren't doing what they need to for the patients. So can you first talk about a little bit, let's go back a little, and um, you mentioned that sometimes when you give a drug, you can go back later, and it doesn't mean you might be refractory to it later. Can you explain how that works? So again, this is, I think, something that we still are learning, and uh, I don't uh, say that it is something that we can actually predict who we can go back mm. to use a certain drug for. What we know is that uh, historically it uh, had been uh, more than anecdotally reported that if a patient got lenalidomide with dexamethasone and then got uh, after he, uh, the disease got resistant, uh, uh, bortezomib with dexamethasone, and then the got, disease got resistant, 
when you then gave the patient a three-drug combination of bortezomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, the patient often had a response again because, uh, uh, you know, of certain uh, perhaps now uh, what is being realized is previously, um, you know, suppressed clones that had reemerged after you withdrew a drug. So um, the... uh, you know, uh, cancer, uh, as I said at the beginning, is not a homogenous entity. It's not as if every cell in a cancer has the same genetics. Um, We are realizing uh, increasingly uh, that uh, not only myeloma, but in any other uh, routine aging process, our bone marrow uh, undergoes mutations. Uh, If you look at people who are in their teens versus people in their 70s and 80s and have no cancer, and you mm-hmm. sequence their uh, bone marrows, uh, you will find more changes uh, in patients who are older than they are younger. So that tells you that even in uh, normal life, our bone marrow uh, is undergoing genetic changes, perhaps due to things in the environment. Uh, and then it is felt that some specific change occurs that allows a certain group of cells to become uh, independent of uh, signals uh, and then these cells take off a life of their own. What we don't know is what these so-called founder mutations are often. We're starting to get some idea in certain diseases uh, as to which of these may be. Um, and then additional mutations occur, uh, which are, uh, you know, what we call passenger mutations, uh, which uh, then uh, propagate with the cancer, may not be as important in the biology of the cancer. So when we do, uh, you know, next generation sequencing of cancer cells, we pick up all these mutations. And the next step is to figure out which of these mutations is actually uh, important in the uh, uh, survival of the cancer cell and which of these is just uh, background noise. And that is going to take years to, unfortunately, uh, in a lot of cases, um, decipher uh, because then you have to go back to the laboratory and often uh, develop um, cells in the laboratory or uh, mice uh, that lack certain genes or uh, or have certain genes overexpressed to sh- see if a particular mutation really causes a cancer in the laboratory. And uh, a lot of these mutations do not do anything in the laboratory. So they tell you that these are probably just background noise to which if you were to target your efforts, uh, they will probably not bear fruit. Um mm-hmm. So we're just at the beginnings of uh, this, uh, you know, um, process. Uh, we've validated a technology. The cost of the technology has come down tremendously. The first human genome took 10 years to uh, to sequence. It was a, a race between a federal go- government effort led by the NIH and uh, Craig Venter, who had his own Celera Genomics. And after 10 years, both of these groups independently came up with the first human genome. They took a billion dollars plus to uh, get the first human genome. Now you can sequence an entire human genome in under a week, and the cost of sequencing the genome is down to $1,000. So the $1,000 genome that is often talked about is here. But the issue is, what uh, often is lost in this, uh, is the fact that you have to add $9,000 to pay the people, then that will then uh, be able to uh, uh, make sense of this genome. So to put it in perspective, one human genome produces four terabytes of data, uh, and that is what a lot of PCs can't hold. Uh, So uh, what you ultimately end up doing is holding this data in uh, big, uh, you know, supercomputers, and what you have to do is not then sequence one genome, but sequence hundreds of genomes from a pa- from patients with a certain disorder to really make sense of what the data 
is going to look like. So you can imagine a Excel spreadsheet with uh, like uh, three to four billion columns because that's how many uh, base pairs our genome has, and uh, then several hundred rows of patients. So you don't even know which cell in that Excel spreadsheet to start focusing on. And there you are actually now reliant on mathematicians and uh, computer scientists to develop algorithms to query such large uh, databases. And the bottleneck is really not now in the ability to sequence. A sequencer costs now just a few hundred thousand dollars, probably less than what an MRI machine or a CT scanner costs. And uh, literally any uh, institution can buy a uh, a sequencing machine now, and but the real bottleneck is in the uh, manpower that has the ability to make sense of this data because this requires people with a background knowledge of both biology and computer science to be able to write programs to query databases, uh, and that talent pool is very small even in large institutions like ours, like Washington University was one of the three institutions that led the federal effort to sequence the human genome. Um, it was a combined effort uh, that was led here at Washington University, at the NIH, and at Sanger Institute in England, and that produced the first human genome. And even at our own institution, we don't have enough people uh, to uh, make, uh, to interpret data. Uh, we have uh, like a facility that is two blocks by two blocks full of supercomputers that holds data, and we just don't have the people that, uh, who will be having the uh, uh, you know uh, time to spare to uh, be able to uh, look through that data. Uh, it's really uh, unbelievable. Uh, we uh, uh, even have the money uh, often to pay for these people but you just don't have the skill set uh, uh, available. Uh, these people are wanted by everybody, somebody who's working on breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, and somebody who's working on myeloma, and everybody wants their time. Mm. That's a massive, it sounds like a massive filtering effort that may not be possible in one institution. Well, it has to be done. Uh, it's a combined effort, and some of the things that are uh, afoot, which you mentioned, like the Compass Project, is actually a very big uh, uh, effort in big data analytics, uh, open source, uh, where the data is actually in a public repository available for anybody, anywhere, to access and interpret. And uh, the fact is that, unfortunately, few people have the ability to do that today, and it's a true case of data overload, and there are, you know, uh, large uh, multinational corporations that are getting into this field of bioinformatics, uh, right from IBM to Google, uh, they're realizing that this is a issue that has to be solved. Um, it will be in due course of time, but it is just something to put in perspective that Sequencing of the human genome is a very easy thing now. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it is just an investment of a few thousand, uh, few hundred thousand dollars, perhaps two hundred thousand dollars, to buy a machine. The next step, interpretation of the data that is produced by that machine, is where the problem mm -hmm. lies. And the fact is that a lot of institutions um, have started focusing on known areas that they look for targeted mutations, that certainly has become very feasible. So in CLIA-certified laboratories now, uh, a set of anywhere from a few dozen to a few hundred genes uh, uh, can be uh, sequenced and uh, data provided. Um, like uh, Companies like Foundation Medicine are at the forefront of this effort. Uh, but one needs to put in perspective at that they are looking at uh, something that is just a very small portion of your genome, which they think has already uh, provided us some information. And so let's just look at these 200 genes. But you have 25,000 odd genes. And uh, in a certain patient, uh, it may not be one of those 400 genes that they have on their panel that is important. It may be one of those tens of thousands of genes that 
uh, are not important for the majority, but in a certain patient may be important. So how mm-hmm. do we get to that uh, uh, level uh, of uh, analysis on a wide, commercially available uh, and and clinically applicable basis is going to be uh, something that will take the better part of a decade or two to get to. Mm-hmm. It's a massive effort and very, very complicated. It is, however, well, something that is, I think, mm-hmm. where the answers are going to come from. Most of the drug development to date is what we call empiric, which is you come uh, up with uh, a drug and you give it to a patient with uh, with patients with variety of cancers and what is called phase one development and then you get a signal that a certain kind of cancer seems to be responding and then you go ahead and enroll a few dozen patients with that specific kind of cancer try to get what the true response rate is and if it is still promising you move to the phase 3 large studies that compare it to standards of care and then get the drug approved but then you spend 20 years figuring out why that drug worked in the first place for mm-hmm. example bortezomib and lenalidomide have been on the market for more than 10 years to this date we do not know why they work uh we have some postulates um, uh, of why they work but that's the old mechanism of drug development, empiricism. The new model is, well, valid, uh, identify a target, and then you go and develop a drug to the target. And uh, increasingly what we are realizing is this targeted drug development is probably also uh, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, too naive a concept because often we develop a drug to a target based on rational drug development. It works, and then you figure out that, oh, it's working not because it works on the target we thought it was targeting originally, but perhaps on a different target or on more than one target. So it's fascinating, the field. What is going to be uh, in the future uh, challenging is that as we break myeloma into smaller groups, as you um, were saying, uh, there are patients who have uh, different genetic abnormalities, um, how are we going to uh, get the drugs that uh, uh, are uh, going to work for particular patient groups? Um, there's one thing called personalized medicine, which is, uh, yes, you are looking at a patient's tumor and you are trying to get a drug specific to that patient. But I think what people don't realize often is another word that is used often interchangeably, precision medicine, is a little different than personalized medicine. Precision medicine is a one step further than personalized medicine. We haven't even conquered personalized medicine and we're already talking about actually venturing into precision medicine, which is that you become agnostic to what your tumor is. You don't care if a patient has breast cancer, lung cancer, colon cancer, or myeloma for that matter. You are developing a drug to a particular mutation. And as long as the patient's tumor has that mutation, you will try the drug. Case in point, BRAF, which is now known to be one of the more commonly mutated uh, uh, genes in myeloma, uh, albeit only 5 to 6% of patients carry that, is a gene that is mutated much more commonly in melanoma. And we have seen in melanoma skin cancer, often actually confused with myeloma by some people, um, uh, that these drugs did very well and got approved. Uh, there are uh, more than one BRAF inhibitor approved. And now we've learned that in patients who have BRAF mutations in myeloma, that these drugs work as well. So the thing is that now there has to be a different paradigm of drug development where you are actually going to go to the FDA and say, I have a drug that I want approved not for myeloma. I want a drug approved for patients with BRAF mutation. And Mm -hmm. right now, the FDA is not even set up to think along those lines. They're cognizant of it. They're starting to, uh, uh, you know, say that that is probably where we're going to be heading in the future. And just recently have certain trials started where people are enrolling patients, irrespective of cancer type, with certain mutations. And uh, I think that what is going to happen is then that you're going to have smaller groups of patients uh, 
within a disease, uh, but perhaps if you have drugs to a mutation that is disease agnostic, you can still uh, justify the economics of drug development. Because otherwise, uh, if myeloma, uh, we have only tens of thousands of patients each year in the United States and we break it into groups of 500, drug companies are often not going to think it is worth an investment to bring a drug out for uh, patients uh, who number 500 in the United States. But if you can say that, well, it's going to help patients with myeloma, breast cancer, lung cancer, but a subset of each of them, then maybe it will still be economical. And uh, I think it's something that that is going to happen. We're in the beginnings of that uh, uh, era, um, but it is going to be there soon. All right, well, I I would I think that'd be fantastic because then you could separate everybody everybody out and I mean you still need the yeah. myeloma specific expertise I think but um you could yeah, maybe I think you will need the disease specific expertise for sure. And the fact is that you know there are these uh, things that are being called N of 1 trials that are also uh, something that are increasingly getting placed. So previously uh, you gave drugs to patients and you enrolled 200 patients and if say hypothetically uh, you know 50 of them responded the drug was approved but if 40 responded the drug was not approved. However those 40 responded you for- forgot that that they responded, and some of them entered a complete remission, and there was probably a reason why they responded. And so now people are saying that actually it is even if one patient responds in a trial, you need to study his genome and figure out why he responded because there may be something there that may help a lot of other patients. Mm-hmm. That can be shared. And you just don't know why, but you should find out why. <laughs> Very yeah. true. Well, maybe I, I would just want to give you a minute to finish talking about or give us a little more detail about the ibrutinib. I know you um, you presented at ASH in December, and you mentioned that it kind of came out of chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So that's an example of borrowing from another type of um, cancer to find a drug that might work in myeloma. Do you want to explain that, and then we'll open it up for some caller questions? Sure. So, brutinib is a drug that targets a specific uh, um, receptor called uh, the BTK receptor, bruton tyrosine kinase. Uh, We have known for a long time that in certain lymphomas and also in chronic lymphocytic leukemia that this target is overexpressed and it was one of those very rational uh, methods of drug development that was pursued um, and was found to be successful. uh, it was then shown in uh, certain laboratories that though the normal plasma cells doesn't express BTK, that uh, malignant plasma cells, myeloma cells, uh, actually do express the receptor to some extent, but more so that the environment of the cancer, uh, especially certain components of the bony environment and the stroma that the myeloma cell lives in, uh, actually uh, uh, you know, express the receptor. And uh, previously, uh, we had actually a couple of years ago um, presented a poster at one of the ASH meetings to show that uh, it seemed to be modulating uh, uh, favorably certain uh, cytokines, chemicals in the microenvironment that uh, are responsible for myeloma cell growth. At that time, we did not have the clinical data. Uh, Now, it uh, appears that when combined with uh, dexamethasone especially, uh, that there are some patients that are responding to the drug. Um, and uh, these patients are uh, heavily pretreated. Quite a few of them have actually had a fair amount of dexamethasone before, so um, uh, people um, think that uh, attributing the response to dexamethasone alone may not be um, the reason why they're responding. Um, so uh, we're trying to see, I think, in a larger subset if this uh, signal holds true. Uh, there are other trials that are combining ibrutinib with other drugs like carfilzomib, and I think that one has to uh, wait uh, till a little more data is available to see, um, uh, uh, you know, how the drug develops for myeloma, whether it has the potential uh, to uh, become another drug uh, uh, for patients with myeloma in the future. Okay, great. Well, thank you for covering that. I wanted you to be able to share that. 
Now, my my final question is a quick one: is is what is the impact of clinical trial participation by patients for you in your research? I think that uh, it is tremendous. I think that uh, we always encourage patients to enroll on clinical trials. Uh, clinical uh, trial enrollment, uh, unfortunately, nationally is only in less than 5% of patients who are treated are on a clinical trial. And we know that we cannot develop new drugs till patients are on clinical trials. And patients are today able to avail of drugs that are proven because in the past, one day someone had agreed to go on a clinical trial. And clinical trials are vetted by uh, uh, not only scientists, by ethicists, by patient advocates before you can actually enroll patients on clinical trials. So there are uh, few trials where uh, patients are getting uh, a sugar pill, uh, a placebo, uh, when uh, uh, most of these trials are looking at adding trials, uh, drugs to existing active options. So I think some hesitancy on some patients' part on enrolling on clinical trials because they think they're going to get ineffective therapy is usually not warranted because uh, the drugs, uh, the trial designs have been, uh, you know, pretty much adjudicated by a lot of people, both scientific and uh, uh other people from uh, non-scientific fields uh, to make sure that uh, they are uh, sound and ethical. Mm, okay, great. Thank you so much. Well, we'll open it up for caller questions. So our first caller is at, uh, and again, if you want to ask a question of Dr. Vinch, please call 347-637-2631 and press 1 on your keypad. So our first call at 204-6956. Go ahead with your question. Hi, thank you for taking my question. Um, great show. Um, out of all the new drugs you've described, what do you believe is the most promising? Is it the monoclonal antibodies that you've talked about, or is there something else? I think, again, you know, uh, certainly the buzz is around the monoclonal antibodies, but it doesn't mean that uh, the other drugs are not good, and it also may be that certain drugs work better for certain patients than others. We don't perhaps even know uh, how to identify those patients today, but a short answer would be I think that the monoclonal antibodies among the drugs that are further along in development appear to be the most promising that will probably provide the next improvement in the survival of patients with myeloma. And how long would you think would you think that it might take to get some of those drugs to the general public or to the general myeloma patient? Well, helotuzumab may be among the first to be approved, and it is possible if the trial reads out this year as anticipated, we can't guarantee it, that it could be there on the market by the end of the year or early next year. Uh, I think the, the CD38 antibodies, um, at large extent, depends on uh, how the FDA looks at data. There are um, a certain trials that are single-arm phase two studies that are trying to uh, sh uh, prove to the FDA that uh, daratumumab uh, 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 and, for that matter, even uh, SAR uh, potentially has uh, activity in an unmet medical need population. And if you can show that, then the drug comes to market sooner, as early as perhaps, again, late next year. But if the FDA feels that you need to do a large randomized phase three study, then it could be two or three years or longer before that class of antibodies comes to market. Okay. Um, I have one more question. Are there any cross-cancer clinical trials that include myeloma, like the BRAF mutation that you mentioned? Yeah, there are uh, a few of them. The BRAF mutation trial is being run through Novartis Pharmaceuticals that uh, takes patients irrespective of cancer type. Uh, there are, uh, you know, other uh, trials that are in, uh, also starting. Um, for that, however, you need to often uh, first be able to know whether one's tumor type expresses that mutation, and that is usually not uh, done commercially. It has to be done um, specifically for purposes of uh, trying to get on the particular trial. Um, so um, there are some barriers often with insurance, unfortunately, in uh, getting these tests paid for on a commercial basis. But if it is for a trial, uh, often the costs are covered. 
Okay. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your question. Okay, our next caller is at 371-3695. Go ahead with your question. Thank you very much. You know, you may see me on there a couple of times, and that's because I got disconnected. And, oh, that's and okay. It, okay, so just this is only there's only one call. Uh, thank you, Doctor. I really, uh, really found uh, found this very instructive. I, I have I have two two short questions, and they both have to do with with my own history. Um, so if I could just give it to you in a 15 second summary, um, I had a tandem uh, transplant. Ten years ago, I had seven years of CR on five milligrams of Revlimid and then relapsed, and I've been on Velcade and Nexamethasone for two and a half years and a PR. And my question has, there are two questions. One, uh, having to do with what you were referring to with tonal, with, with tonal tides and uh, in reuse or rechallenge, do you have any experience personally about you know re re um administering brevlimid at a higher dose after let's say a two and a half year period and getting decent results i can't, i can't get a straight answer from anybody about this and well, know, what we know is that certain people who are on 5 or 10 milligrams of Revlimid as maintenance and have slow biochemical progression, we will often increase the dose to 25 and often add dexamethasone, and patients do have responses. Uh, they're usually not very long-lived, but uh, the fact is that they do respond. Now, what I'm alluding to is trying to increase the dose of the drug immediately as a lower dose is failing. Uh, right. What I had uh, talked about in terms of clonal tides is trying to go back to that drug, say, if Velcadex fails or Clofer, uh, or, uh, you know, uh, you have uh, some other drug, pomalidomide for that matter, and then uh, failing and uh, people say, let's try Revlimid again. I've not done that. Obviously, I've said that there is now emerging data that for certain patients that may be a feasible option, but the issue is that we are not able to do that Clinically, for patients, we don't, uh, unfortunately, uh, can get these tests done in real time uh, for patients to see if they have a clone that is sensitive to the drug. Um, it may be possible in the future, um, and not too many people hazard going back to the same drugs because in myeloma, fortunately, there are quite a few drugs, and you'd rather go to something uh, that you haven't tried rather than going blindly back to a drug that has failed once if you had some surety that it was going to work based on some laboratory test, then you'd be more likely to do so. Okay, I understand. All right, then the second question really has to do with, uh, again, with the time period. Uh, having had a tandem 10 years ago, um, uh, the value of another transplant, a rescue, a rescue transplant at this point uh, from the point of view of safety, and the point of view of uh, efficacy. This was a, a planned tandem resulting yeah, in... Yeah, so the thing is that uh, uh, certainly people get uh, often three transplants, sometimes very few even more in their lifetime. What we generally say is for patients who have had a two-year progression-free interval after their first transplant, be it a single transplant or tandem, that it may be reasonable to consider a retransplant at the time of disease uh, progression. In fact, there was a recent trial published in uh, the Lancet Oncology a few months ago, which was a randomized study where patients who had previously had a transplant progressed were randomized to another transplant on progression or chemotherapy, and there was actually a, a survival advantage to using transplant. Um, the trial design has been faulted by some because of the chemotherapy given the control arm, but by and large, I think most people would agree that a tandem tra that a transplant at progression is a reasonable option for who those who have had a reasonably good progression-free survival after an initial single or tandem transplant. I see, and you and you put single and tandem together and and, and consider that one. Then two. Uh, right. I mean, the third would third. I understand what you're saying. Uh, Third transplant. Oh, all right, and, and who's the author of that? If I could ask you one more question of that Lancet Oncology article. 
Oh, I forget the name of the author, but if you just were to uh, Google Lancet Oncology uh, Myeloma Transplanted Progression, I'm sure you'll come up with a hit. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it very much. Okay, thank you so much for your question. Okay, we have time for one more question, and I can't tell the number, so we will take your call and listen to your headpiece. <laughs> but you are live with a question. Okay. Hello? Hello? Yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry. Uh, that's great. Sorry. I didn't know. Uh, so my question is a uh, simple question. I have uh, just wondering, like, how to treat a bone lesion with renal insufficient patient? Like, what drug do we recommend with people who have bone lesion, but they have renal insufficient patient, like, with a light chain, right? With a light chain uh, myeloma. Yeah, so the thing is that, uh, again, uh, uh, generally there are packet insert guidelines for dose reduction for patients with renal insufficiency for the bisphosphonates. And uh, generally, uh, it is not an absolute contraindication to give a bisphosphonate adjusted for renal dysfunction. That is the only known proven class of drug that uh, one can advocate to preserve bone health. Um, certainly, denusumab, a drug that is approved for metastatic disease from solid cancers to bone is something that hasn't been approved for myeloma. Um, the, that drug uh, is currently being looked at in myeloma trials, but may offer an option in the future uh, as a very active uh, drug that has no renal toxicity at all. Okay, so... You it is a approved drug, but not for myeloma currently. Okay, and what's the name of it? Denusumab. Denusumab. Okay, not D E N U S O M O B. Yeah. M O B. Okay, so it's a denusumab. Okay. Correct. Okay. So you recommend okay either do a dose reduction for the as per packet guidelines. Correct. Now, correct. Okay. And then, so you are saying this might be some drug in the future will be available with less uh, renal toxicity, yeah. Now, there are two bisphosphonates currently approved. There is pomidronate and there is zometa. Now, sometimes renal toxicity occurs due to the drug, and it is important to know that both those drugs have different mechanisms of renal toxicity. So if the renal toxicity is not due to myeloma but due to the bisphosphonate, then switching the class of, uh, switching from one bisphosphonate to the other may be an option. would have to discuss with one's doctor. Okay, so switching the phosphonates uh, with uh, with which drug? If the renal insufficiency is thought to be due to the drug itself, then right. yes, that may be one thing to try. If it is due to the myeloma, then obviously it's not right. probably going to matter right. that much. Right. Well, that's right. So what kind of drug can we switch to, you said? Well, if you're on Zometa, you can go to Aridia. If you're on Aridia, you can go to Zometa in that case Some, and Aridia. try. There are two drugs, Aridia and Zometa. You know, pomidronate and zolindronic acid are the, are the, you know, the brand are the generic names. Okay, the Remedia and uh, the. Aridia, A R E D I A. A R E D I E, Aridia and what's the other? Zometa, Z O M E T as in Tom A. Z I E Zometa. No, Z O M E T as in Tom A. And okay. if you need help with the drug names, you can always email um, info at crowdcare.org, and I can help you with the drug names. Okay, that would be great, yeah. So I just like still learning. But thank you so much. I appreciate your help. Okay, thank you so much for your question. Okay, um, Dr. Vidge, thank you so much for joining us today. We are just so grateful for your hard work and your brilliant efforts for myeloma patients and are just so thankful for all you do for us. And we're thankful for the patients uh, who, you know, go on clinical trials, and we're just, uh, you know, trying to help patients. Well, you're doing a great job, so thank you so much, especially for patients that have relapsed coming up with new approaches. All right, well, thank you for listening to... Oops. Just a second. <laughs> 
We are thankful that you listened to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for our next Myeloma Crowd Radio interview as we learn more about how we as patients can help drive to a cure for myeloma by joining clinical trials. Thank you. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.